got it, ladies and gentlemen. Andy's back. Sorry. We, uh... Back we, again. We, um... Let, let me tell you the text I, I got. Intro music. Let me let me tell you the text I got last night from Andy. Hey, I'm surprised at how well the episode you did without me has done. <laughs> not say that. It, it said something close to that. I did not say without me. I said I did not expect this last episode to be this popular. Right. And what was different about the last episode as opposed to all the other episodes was me not having the opportunity to clap back when you had criticize me right so i didn't get a chance to share about how i handle criticism that's what was lacking right well and clearly people <laughs> loved it so so just proof again that um that that andy is uh, an accoutrement he is an add-on he is he is beautiful um he's a trophy wife uh, to the vox podcast it's beautiful um <laughs> no uh, not give me, give me my own reality tell show, me then. tell me um uh, what what nicknames do you have for Shepherd so far? Oh, um, Shep to the Shep, Shep, Shep to the Shep, Shep. Yeah, I mean Sheppy? Shepherd, Sheppy, baby, Shep. No, <laughs> Sheppy, Sheppy, Sheppy. Come on, man. No purd. Yeah, no, no, I don't go purd. I don't go purd. I know we have some other big fans of purd out there. Yep, yep. Purd, purd has joined the herd. Purd has joined. So the herd. Andy is here. Um, uh, remarkably alert, <laughs> with three children under the age of five, and um, and uh, Mercedes is doing okay. Yes, better than okay. Yeah. I think we're, we're good. We're happy. We're excited. We got a new baby. Damn straight, you got a That's new right. baby. There are people out there that would love to be able to have yes. babies. So yes, for crying are. out loud, yeah. Um, so anyway, Shepard, this one's for you, buddy. Um, we are. Uh, we've got a great conversation lined up for us today. A guy named Micah Bournier. Is that how I say it? I mean, <laughs> I called him Born. He's Micah Born. You're just thinking of Born Identity. You're is that what it is? That. Is it Boyer? No, it's Bournier. Bournier. I don't think it's Bournier. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I. Yeah. Hashtag so white. Um, <laughs> it's a French name, though. That's why it's funny. Bournier. Bournier. Oh, Bournier. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Born A. Yeah, there we go. Okay, sure, good. That's close enough. Born this A. Um, so anyway, Micah. Okay, Micah is a rock star. Let me tell you about this guy. So our friend Izzy, um, who uh, is our resident artist at Vox Community, brought in Micah. He's like, you're going to love this guy. He's a spoken word artist. He's, I mean, and he just freaking killed it. And so we've had him back and we're like, we got to get this guy on the podcast. I mean, he's so articulate. He's 28. Yeah. Uh, he is articulate. He is uh, he's such great thoughts about race, and you know we hate having a black guy on uh, to talk about race. Um, but it's better than. But if we did it without it, then everyone would be like, "Way to go and talk about race without right. a black guy in the exactly. room." Exactly. So, so we um, um, we're calling this episode "The Art of Race" because he has this his spoken word thing really is able to to communicate in ways that are very interesting. So hmm. um, uh, as always, I mean, we don't bring guests on and think that everyone will, you know, agree with everything that's said, but man, we, we think this guy's thought provoking and mm -hmm. is worthy uh, of a good listen. So anyway, um, here is Micah born, born yay or born a, uh, I I'd probably call him all three things <laughs> here in the, in the interview. So hope you enjoy it. Ladies and gentlemen, it is so thrilling for us to be here with our friend Micah. Micah, um, say hello. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is uh, Micah Bourne. He is uh, 28 years old. Yep. He is of a different color. So I don't know if you can if you can know that. Like people say, I don't see color. I see color. And right now I <laughs> yeah. see half Filipino and I see full African-American and then I see... I see me, which is kind of translucent, but we are we are glad. And and Micah uh, is a friend of Izzy's, who uh, is our resident artist, and he's performed, but has um, man, he's just become a friend of our community, and we're excited to have him on the show. Yeah. Micah, tell us a little bit about yourself. Grew up in Long Beach. Yeah, my name is Micah Bournet. I am. Oh, Bournet. Yeah, it's all good. Damn. <laughs> yeah, that's French. That's that's French right there. So that's okay. So the whole the Caucasian version, born. <laughs> The real version, Borne. Ironically. Yes, exactly. Okay, sorry. <laughs> it's all good. Yeah, but no, I was born and raised in Long Beach, California. So Love I'm that. Lo local here in Southern California. Yeah. 
And then, and then were you raised uh, in the church, in a Christian family? What was your family life like? Yeah, I was. Uh, my parents met at church, actually, and I've been going to church since the womb. So Boom. it's something uh, I grew up with. Um, and, you know, like most people, you just kind of roll with what you're born into. You know, you don't expect your parents to be lying to you about things as important as the universe and God and truth, right? But what about um, Santa Claus? <laughs> well, my parents, they never... That. See, see, see my dad. See, see. My, my mom and my dad had this thing. That's so why you turned out okay. We never, uh, we never got Christmas presents from our parents, and they said they oh. say Christmas is Jesus' birthday, not yours. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so with that though, like it was a real like they were not Grinches. We celebrated Christmas. We put up a manger scene, all this stuff. But they would say, look, on your birthday, we get you what you want, right? We right. think about what you like. So right. on Christmas. We ain't finna buy you presents on somebody else's birthday. If it's Jesus' birthday, then we got to think about if we're going to give Jesus a gift, what would he want? And so every year for Christmas, um, our family would uh, find another family who is less fortunate than us or do something together um, and say, hey, this is how we give Jesus a birthday gift. Okay, yeah. we're done with the interview. This is um, <laughs> indicting already. <laughs> but yeah, so we never got presents. Oh my and we, goodness! But we didn't. We like we didn't miss it. We didn't feel like we missed out on anything because we still had Christmas dinner. We still celebrated. We still put up decorations. I love it. Yeah. And your brothers and sisters? Oh yeah, I'm one of six. That's what I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah. And then did they all go to Bible college or just you? No, nah, I was the only one. Yeah, tell yeah. me about that. What was that like? Um. Well. <clears throat> it was interesting because <laughs> because I, I grew up in in a very multicultural environment in long beach mm. i mean a classroom in my high school looked like the united nations every culture you could think of i love that um and then i went to a bible college in the midwest and i get there and um it was severely lacking diversity mm -hmm. um and it was really hard at first because you know folks who were supposed to be my brothers and sisters in christ but they were doing and saying things that were so ignorant, so hurtful. Mm. And so I got my freshman year, I was very bitter and I was ready to, to leave transfer. I was like, man, forget this, like these racists supposed to be Christians. Mm. Um, but then I remember one time, particularly, I got in a conversation with this cat and we were talking for like 10 minutes in my dorm room. And he said, uh, you know, Micah, this is the longest I've ever talked to a black person. Mm. And I thought to myself, Wow. And then he goes on to say, I'm from a small town in the Midwest. And he goes, there's only one black family in our entire town. And we didn't really know them. And so I thought, OK, for me, what got me through the four years of school was after that conversation, having this realization that I didn't choose to be born into a diverse city. I just was. Right. Mm -hmm. And I learned and I benefited from that in some ways. But then I'm sure I have limitations because of that, too. But this dude, he didn't even have an opportunity to make a friend with anyone from another culture because where he grew up, there just was no diversity, right? Right, And so, of course, if you grow up in a small town that doesn't have any minorities, then every thought you have about people other than you is a stereotype, even if it's positive, because it's right. like, it, or I should say it's a prejudice and because prejudice just means to prejudge. And so it's like, for me, I made the distinction between racism and prejudice because I think mm. racism comes from hate. Right. If you're a racist and you say all black people are stupid and I parade a line of 50 black doctors and intellectuals and brilliant black folks, you would still say all black people are stupid. If you're prejudiced, you say all black people are stupid because I never met any black people. And everything I'm told by these other people tell me black people are stupid. Then I introduce you to black people and you go, oh, oh, actually, he's pretty smart. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and so, and so, um, so yeah, a, I, I ran into a lot of prejudice because there was a lot of white people from a lot of communities that were not diverse. And uh, it was hard. But it, when I realized it wasn't necessarily coming from hate, it gave me the patience and grace to be like, all right, let me let me explain to you why you can never do that or say that again. What, what, <laughs> what were what were things? I mean, just because I think we're all guilty at some point of, of some of these things. What, what were things that would happen that would be? um examples of of prejudice but not hate that you were you were picking up on your freshman year totally um i want i want to talk on the, like the institutional level of the school and not okay. necessarily the personal got um, it in between because there was a lot of like just like comments and stuff but i think overall the environment felt unintentionally unwelcoming okay um because there were things that were done there were beliefs that 
the school had that they weren't trying to be uh, discriminatory, but because there was such an overwhelming majority of one culture, they were. So, for example, <laughs> um, chapel, right? You go, we had chapel three times a week. Now, the overwhelming majority of the songs that were sung in chapel were songs that were common in predominantly white expressions of church community. You know, you have Hillsong and like uh, kind of traditional white hymns um, and also the style of the music and expression in general, right, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. was very just kind of like simple. Um, and I remember my freshman year several times them singing songs that I had never heard in my life. And I'm looking around and everybody else in the auditorium knows every word, mm -hmm. right? And so, and, and I'm never hearing any songs out of the African-American tradition of church, um, unless it's February Black History Month, <laughs> and we have the gospel choir singing three Kirk Franklin songs, because he's the only, you know, he's the only gospel artist that white people know, right? And so, so when, oh you're, when you're in chapel, and like, I remember so distinctly, I was like, how, is this a popular song? <laughs> Why does everybody know this but me? So I just right there kind of felt like on the outside of this inside thing right yeah. mm. and and again and and the the songs from my culture were never ever incorporated right um in at least not in regular rotation and so so there was that there were also things for example the school um had these rules um we had it, it was called the sld the student life guide and so one of the things it said no extreme or distracting hairstyles right and this was a rule oh, written written a long time ago right yeah and so um and then it, it said that but then it got specific and so it said no unnatural hair dye. so you could dye your hair like brown or something but you couldn't dye it like blue or purple which okay. is fine whatever okay but then it specifically said male students are not allowed to have dreadlocks or braids Come on, and and I went, and I'm looking at I'm looking at Micah right now, <laughs> and I <laughs> <In> went violation. <laughs> well, at the time, actually, I I didn't have either. I had an afro, had a big fro, um, but I went to the dean. Uh, well, first I wrote him a letter, mm -hmm. and then he sent me an email and said, "Hey, can we meet?" And I said, "Look, I guarantee you, there's never been a white male student." who decided not to come to Moody because he didn't want to cut his locks. Right, Because right. he didn't want to take the braids out of his hair. Right. I said, in the African-American community, for a man to have locks or braids, especially at the time, that is not extreme or distracting. Right. It could be very professional. It could be very neat, very clean. Right. I was like, whenever this rule was written, thinking of their all-white students, I'm sure it made sense in their head at the time. Right. You know, but... I was like, you're only deterring minorities. Hmm. Also, with beliefs, um, like, and and then just the way things run, like, not only there's there there are charismatic expressions of you know, uh, white churches that have charismatic theology, but for the most part, a lot of more expressive uh, branches <laughs> of the faith are minority communities, black, right. Latino, right. all these things. Hmm. So, when you have doctrines like cessationism, right? right being taught as that's the view that's the view that all of the the charismatic gifts yeah all ceased. the miraculous gifts yes. so like speaking in tongues and and healing, healing and all prophecy. of these things like those kind of like ended with the death of the apostles like that era right. and and god can still do it but he doesn't necessarily do it through us anymore that's like right. this is the general idea now um in class you know we were taught we were taught multiple views and cessationism though was like this is the right view right and then these are the other views and people still might be saved but you know this is not right. like it was kind of like this this is what's really real and then these are some other options that other christians might believe but what that created in me was this this idea that i realized when i left moody um i would go when i would visit because i travel a lot for work in my poetry and i would be like the way it actually played out was I was looking at all like charismatic and predominantly minority expressions of of church with a side eye, like oh y'all y'all not quite solid because you worship like this yeah. or you do like this, and then the good orthodox solid biblical churches just happen to always be the white churches, and, and <laughs> you know, and, and, and I was they, like, oh wait a minute, pockets. oh wait wait a minute, like what this the outplaying of this theology is instead of 
starting with fellowship and brotherhood and sisterhood, I'm starting with skepticism of anybody who doesn't think like this, mm. you know, and I'm like, well, was mm. that a reflection of the makeup of the faculty? Well, I think it was just a reflection of the Could, overall idea. And this is, we, okay, we kind of started this interview before the interview because we got oh here goodness. and couldn't wait. We started, so ta- we started so talking. Good. So go, go, but go yeah, there. Yeah. So like, um, there was one cat, um, at my school, his name was Tyrone and he was from Jamaica and I was talking to him one time. And he was saying, yo, um, you know, one of the hardest parts, he's like, I come from an all black community hmm. in Kingston, Jamaica. And he goes, all my teachers were white. All of my friends, my, everybody was white or excuse me, were, was black growing up. That is. And he goes, um, he goes, and then I get to Moody and it's just opposite. He's like my roommates, my classmates, the professors It's like, everything's white. And then he made a comment that made me think. And he goes, even the textbooks, he's like pretty much all of the books, the authors of the text that we use, all of the theologians we study and reference, they're all white. Right. And that's true. And I was like, huh. Now, don't get me wrong. Like, I love A.W. Tozer and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Soren Kierkegaard and all these Christian theologians and philosophers who have great things to say. But when he said that, I realized, whoa, like the entirety of my formal Christian education was coming from one culture and gender. Right. Mm. And Come I on. and I thought to myself, it is impossible <laughs> for my theology to be well balanced and to be reflective of, of the truth if if I'm literally letting one culture and gender teach me everything there is to know about God and and how to think. All the philosoph- uh, philosophers and all the theologians I read were white guys. Mm. And so I thought, oh man, and, and this is this is how I try to explain white privilege to people, both inside and outside the church. So white privilege is not saying that everywhere I go, you know, I'm treated less than white people, right? There's mm. plenty places I go where I'm treated pretty much exactly equal, like when I go to certain restaurants, whatever. But like white privilege, that's, that's not what it means. Um, what it means is when you look in American society at any institution, so if we're talking about government, if we're talking about higher education, if we're talking about big business, if we're talking about the church, you rise to the top of these institutions. They say, who is in positions of power in government? Who is in positions of power in higher education? Who is in the positions of power of big business? Overwhelmingly so in every pillar of society, the people with the power and the influence and the resource are white men to like 85, 90%, you know, like, and so I say, if that is the case, then even without them intentionally trying to skew things to benefit themselves, it's just going to happen by default because we all look at things through the lens of who we are in our culture. So I said, you know, if you were to flip the number of white men in Congress with Asian women or Latin men or black people, like, don't you think naturally just that inverse amount would, would change the way the country was run? If there was as many Asian women in government as there were white men, and they are making decisions as to what's best for the nation, healthcare. how we should spend our yeah. money, health care. It would look it would look so different. Right. And, yeah. and, and that does not mean that they would be in this conspiracy to make the country benefit Asian women. But it would happen naturally if there was that great of an imbalance. If we had 90 percent Asian women as our politicians, it just would happen. And so that's what I'm saying. So like, how do you see it in church? How do you see this play out in church? So you saw it in, in a Christian Bible college. Yeah. Yeah. with the books you were reading, the professors. How do you see this play out in church? I, to me, it's the same. It's, it's the overall Christian culture. And when I say Christian, um, more specifically, let's say like kind of conservative evangelical culture because yep. that's what yep. I grew up in. Right? Yeah. Um, and so I saw it at my Bible college, but it was the same thing at church. It's the same thing at Christian radio. You know, like my mom used to always listen to Christian radio growing up, um, but it was always... Alistair Begg and the Bible Answer Man and a bunch of <laughs> and, a, and a bunch of white guys and Chuck, you know, Papa Chuck, and all these yep. things. And it's like and John MacArthur and all dudes with great things to say. Right. But they never had. I don't want to say never, but they very seldom had anything else. And so with church, um, even the church I went to growing up, it was the same thing. It was ethnically diverse because of the neighborhood it was in. Like you right. look around and you saw faces of every color. But when it actually came to the leadership of the church. When it actually came to the type of songs we would sing and where those songs came from, when it came to the style of preaching and the style the church was run, 
the the diversity was very superficial. The pastor was white, um, and the culture of the way the church was run was white. Mm. The only thing diverse about it was actually the skin tones. But like there was not there was not these other cultures incorporated into the fabric and the life of the church. Got it. You know, and so uh, one thing we were talking about earlier was was superficial uh, unity and and superficial diversity. I think a lot of people just want to see a bunch of faces of different colors and, and feel good. And that's it. Well, yeah. they, hold yeah. on a second, because yeah. that's what we do at conferences now, right? Yeah. So if you just see a conference that's all white men, yeah. we just realize, okay, they're they're dumb, it's ridiculous. But now, you know, we'll sprinkle in yeah. a black man yeah. and a woman or whatever. And maybe, propaganda um, will perform. Or, or yes. <laughs> and 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 that and that's the kind of superficiality or we'll have a, a gospel choir in mm -hmm. to lead worship during Black History Month or whatever it is. Yeah. That's the kind of superficiality we're talking about, correct? Absolutely. It's and and it's one that again celebrates usually just like the the fun parts, the easily digestible parts of right. diversity. Like Everyone loves diversity if we're talking about food and music, right? right, right. Because <laughs> they can really sing and it right. sounds really good and this tastes good. Yeah, right. I love diversity. Right. But when you start to talk about um, actually giving up power, mm. when, you, when, you, when you talk about actually letting people talk instead of just letting them be there and sing and entertain, like mm. listening to them as they're talking about how frustrating it is to be having, man, I've been a faithful member of this church you know, for 10 years, 15 years, you know, and it's been a struggle every day. Why is that? You know, and like what has been hard? Like we don't necessarily give space for those conversations, for those rebukes. Um, and again, to, to sacrificing power and incorporating to not have the celebration of diversity be this tokenizing thing. I love Black History Month. I love that it exists. But I hate the fact that so often African-Americans on an everyday life are such a significant part of American culture, but in institutions and particularly Christian institutions, like we only celebrate them in these designated times. We only, it's mm. like, Hey, can we have gospel music or can we have black speakers, um, like year around, like invited and also not only invited to talk about racial issues, right. you know, uh, like, can we, can they just talk about theology, you right. know what I'm saying? Of, yeah. of, of all things, you know, um, and, and again, it was, it was, it was interesting because so many things that I, I was taught this, and this is how I see it in church expressed, like so many things that I thought were just orthodox biblical theology were really just white people's theology, you know, <laughs> and it was white male theology. And, and the thing is, <laughs> um, even, even like when it comes to, uh, like, uh, women in leadership and ordination of women, like right. that was something that I was always just trying to be faithful to what I was taught was true. Right. right. And, and any, any church expression that ordained women, right. I, I looked at them, oh, like they're liberal. They don't care. They don't believe what the Bible says, you know? Right. But, um, but then. I look at very, very conservative expressions of black church. Right. And for centuries, black people have been ordaining women. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And yep. they've been trying to be faithful to the Bible. So I'm like, oh, okay. Whether, wherever you land on this, like right. it was a lie that I thought like all solid, you know, Christian communities that actually care about the Bible would come to this conclusion. Like actually that's just conservative white church and this is conservative black no, church it's the bible i'm sorry <laughs> you know and it's the like, bible was written by white men didn't you yeah. know that? yeah well now you just sound like one of them liberals <laughs> well exactly right but i'm like i'm up here and i'm like i know these these expressions of black church are not liberal by any means right and yet mm. on this particular issue they like see no problem and so it's like oh there are other ways of thinking about this um so what's so what's a non-superficial unity look like what does non-superficial unity look like? Yeah. Uh, or diversity. Yeah, yeah. No, no, for sure. Um, I mean, it's a lot of tough conversations. It's not, it's, uh, I, I, I just, the superficial unity is most expressed, as some of you kind of said earlier, is like this whole, there is no color in Christ, right? right I, right, I right, don't right. see color. Right, right. And so it's people looking at our differences as an obstacle to be overcome. Right. If we can only overcome our differences, then we can have unity. And I say, no, mm. actually, unity requires differences. It doesn't take any type of godliness or love or patience or humility or fruit of the spirit to be unified with people who think and act and do exactly like you. Right. You know what I'm saying? That's so right. so to kind of reorient 
how we think about diversity and difference is like not seeing it as an obstacle to be overcome. Right. Seeing it as a gift that if we embrace and invite, we become more Christ-like as God has distributed gifts throughout all types of people and people groups. And so, um, but that's a difficult thing, you know, because we are grow we grow up with our culture and a lot of people think their way of seeing the world is the right way, right? Why why are yeah. these why are these conversations so difficult, do you think? I mean, in America particularly because America has always been about race. Hmm. From the hmm. founding to this day, like so many aspects of American culture um it's just it's just one of the racial tensions and 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 racial prejudice has just been woven into the fabric of who we are hmm. and so it is it's always a difficult conversation yeah um but i think it becomes more difficult when you're trying to wash over it with theology Got so it. again it's like oh there is no color in christ can't we just all be brothers and sisters right. and i tell people no, no no it's not that there is no color in christ it's there's every color in yeah. christ and we shouldn't try to ignore those differences to be unified we should celebrate we should be humble we should realize that we're not always right, right. you know and and also to the majority culture you have to sacrifice power you have to uh, there, there's a quote that um i don't know who said it first but basically um uh and i'm gonna paraphrase it but it more or less um the the loss of privilege feels like oppression to people who are used to having, you know, 18 of the 20 seats at the table. Right. When you tell them you only get two seats, it's like, oh, you took away 16 of our seats. Like, right. yes, yeah. because you had 16 too many. Right. And now instead of having 18, you have two and everybody else has two. Right. And so, yes, your power and your influence is a lot less, but it's a lot more equal now and we're learning mm -hmm. from each other mm -hmm. you know instead of learning from you and then in your generosity giving up two or three seats and praising yourself for being welcoming to diversity i think it's a radical it's going to take a radical shift of realizing that what we've called church in a lot of american expressions is just culture and particularly the majority culture white culture hmm. and so hmm. um that you have to be willing to sacrifice to give up that power that should have never been yours in the first place. So how do you do it in a way that doesn't feel token? So here's what I mean. So, so were you going to say something? Oh, I got, I, have, I maybe have a question that's on the same lines. Okay. But no, I was just going to say, um, on the one hand, if you, if you just put white people talking about race, mm -hmm. it's automatically disqualified. Mm -hmm. If you have a, if, if you invite a black person in to talk mm -hmm. about race, it can feel, I don't know, token or, you know, whatever. So how do you, how do you do that in a way that honors? Yeah. And communicates respect. Uh, to do it regularly. Got it. I think it okay. becomes token when it's once a year. Got when it. When it's mm -hmm. twice a year. Okay. When you, and particularly now in this time, we're going to release this episode in February. Just <laughs> yeah. Just, uh, like just, now, this is, like well, this is perfect for my question. So go ahead and answer that, and then I have a follow up. Yeah. Like if you communicate to your community or your congregation, hey, this is not a three week series that we're going to have real quick, then move on to relationships, you know, like, no, no, right. like this is a crisis right. that has been for centuries in our nation yeah. and currently is flaring its head uglier than ever. And so in all of our theology, um, in the American context, like race has, a, when we're talking about justice, when we're talking about romance, when we're talking about anything, right. um, all of these can be affected by this. And I, I think if you start to incorporate it more regularly um, and yeah. if you start to invite different voices more regularly, people will get exhausted, right? right? And they'll say, oh, why are we always talking about race? And it's like, as a minority, particularly as a young black male, like I don't have the option to stop talking about it because we've been talking about it for three weeks. Right. Every day of my life, I have to be aware of this living mm -hmm. in America. And and I think, yeah, as we as we start to bring it in more regularly, it'll feel less token. I just want to tell one story and then hear your question. But like, again, to kind of this or further explain what white privilege is and why I say every day of my life I face this, because it's nobody has ever called me the N word to my face. Hmm. Right. Um, no one has ever told me I'm not allowed to, to eat here. Um, however, I want to tell two quick stories to kind of illustrate 
the black experience because you can talk but to, to just storytelling I, I feel which is why I write poetry is, is often more mo- most helpful way yeah. to, to make it connect I was riding my bike with a friend uh, she was white and we were riding through this really nice neighborhood that had these cool houses in Long Beach and so we're just looking at the how, old, how old were you this when was this like going on? two years ago okay um, and we were appreciating the beautiful architecture and she got tired because we'd been riding for a while. She goes, hey, can we, can we take a break real quick? I said, oh, yeah. You know, let's bike out of the neighborhood. There's like a park, like not too far, like just a few minutes away. She goes, oh, no, 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 no. I'm tired. I just want to sit down and take a break right here on this curb. And she just wanted to sit down in front of like in the middle of this neighborhood in front of a house. And I was like, nah, I don't think that's a good idea. Like, let's get on our bikes and go. And she was like, no, no, no. Like, we'll just rest a few minutes. And I was like, no, we're not going to rest <laughs> a few minutes. Let's go. And she got upset. And she thought I was being controlling, but she came. So we got to the park and I said, look, I know you didn't notice this, but for me, I felt uncomfortable sitting down that neighborhood because as we were riding around, people were looking out our windows, out their windows. There was a guy who was watering his grass. As soon as we turned on his street, um, he literally watched us the whole time. Says, I just felt like we were being watched, particularly because I was black and I just didn't feel comfortable. Hmm. And at the time she goes, uh, uh, yeah, whatever. It was kind of like, I think you're hypersensitive and you're exaggerating, but whatever. So that was the end of that. Then, a few months later, I'm going to visit a friend in another neighborhood that was predominantly white. And we were supposed to meet at 10 o'clock. But I got there a little early. It was like 9.30. And he was still asleep. And so I texted him. He didn't answer. So I just sat in my car. And I was sitting in my car for about 20 minutes. I was on my phone, checking my email on Instagram, just chilling. 9.30 in the morning and doing nothing. All of a sudden, in my rear view mirror, I see a police walking up to my car with his hand on his gun. Mm -hmm. He walks up to my car and he says, don't reach for it, but do you have your ID? And I said, "Uh, yeah. And he goes, "Uh, let me see your ID. Well, can I reach for it? Because you just told me not to. Wait a second. Calls another police. By the end of this ordeal, there was uh, four police cars and five police surrounding my thing. And... And then he, I give him my ID, they run my plates, he goes, can you get out the car for me? Now, he phrased it like a question, but he barked it like a command. And I knew, I was like, I hadn't broken any laws, the car was registered in my name. I said, no, I, I'm not going to get out the car, because since he phrased it like a question, that would have been consent for him to search my car and search me. I said, no, I'm not getting out the car. I said, what is the problem? I said, officer, is it illegal to sit in your own car? And he says, well, we got a call from someone that said someone suspicious looking had been sitting in their car for over an hour, ducking every time someone walked by. And I said, well, officer, I've only been here for 20 minutes, not an hour. Uh, I don't exactly know what you mean by suspicious looking, but I have an idea. And (laughs) I have not ducked once. I didn't duck or look uneasy or try to run when you even walked up and you're an officer. So somebody is lying. Either the person who called you was lying or you're lying. And this ordeal went on for a good 40 minutes. Finally, my friend wakes up, comes outside, and it's just a lot of mess. I never got out of my car. I never let them search me um, because I was afraid. I don't know what would have happened, how it would have escalated, um, what they might have planted. But at the end of the day, I went back and I called my other friend. And I said, hey, let me tell you what happened to me today. Mm -hmm. Now, you remember when we were riding our bikes and you thought I was paranoid for feeling that way? Well, here, I was sitting in a similar neighborhood and all of this happened. And so what I tell people is the injustice is not just when the cops show up because some racist neighbor called. The injustice is even in the first story. Yeah. She could just ride her bike and sit down and take a rest on the sidewalk Mm -hmm. without thinking about it. Mm -hmm. But that's white privilege to just be free and just exist. Whereas me, I'm constantly aware of my racial environment. And even when something doesn't happen, I'm I'm looking around. Because I know the stereotypes about folks who look like me, about young black males who dress hip hop. I know what people think about me without knowing me. And so even when nothing happens in our heads, I'm having a different experience. She was just riding her bike, having right, fun. Right. You know, and I was like, that's white privilege to just be black folks don't have that luxury. Right. And this is this is happening in California, not in the the South, you know, not in right. Alabama. Right. 
You know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. I'm like, that's that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Andy, what were you going to ask? Yeah. So that's actually, I'm glad that that story happened too, because this, we could tie it to two things. So I have um, attention and then an opportunity is how I want to frame it. Um, the propaganda said something interesting on another podcast I listened to about how, you know, local churches typically reflect the community that they're in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a church pops up in, you know, suburban, white neighborhood, wherever, mm-hmm. similar to probably some places you're talking about. And to Mike's point, you know, you have like that, that token feeling of like, okay, well, we'll have a brother come and share like once a year or whatever, just to show we're quote unquote diverse. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's, I think the two things you're talking about, which is interesting is how a, we've inherited a theology that is predominantly post-European white American focused. Mm -hmm. And then, um, so it's like, there's something to me that's very systematic. That's very problematic in all of that. Cause it's, you can't, if you're talking about. Okay, because we, I think it's fair to make an argument for the the alteration of more ethnic diversity from authoritative voice in a church, mm-hmm. like with regular speakers and really engaging that. And naturally, your community would probably start to change a little bit because of your locale. How and maybe in like a big mega church conversation where information is widespread through video, through audio, and everything, like everyone knows what's going on at Elevation or mm-hmm. over at Saddleback because everyone can access it at any given time. But that's six percent of the entire churches in the United States, whereas the majority of churches, like overwhelming by like eighty percent, are under five hundred to a hundred people, mm-hmm. where they might just be small churches in these, you know, kind of these areas that aren't quite as diverse. Mm-hmm. So to me, the tension is, you know how do you break that mode of affinity where it's like, well, this is like my parents' church, for example, like in Iowa, when they lived there for 10 years, like the church was literally down the street at the end of their house. It's probably about five, eh, maybe like 700 people that go to their church, predominantly white. It's in the middle of Iowa in the Midwest. And what does it look like for them to shake that theology, to have a broader, you know, you know, view of what we're talking about without it seeming superficial, without it seeming like, well, why are you trying to bring in these cultural conversations when this is our local culture? And if the church's purpose in their area is to serve that local culture, Mm -hmm. what becomes the purpose of the church at that point, trying to hold an agenda to broaden diversity or to serve the local needs of their people based on who they are, how they do things, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the tension. And then the opportunity that I'm curious about is then, is that, but nowadays, because of widespread information, because Mm -hmm. of exposure and everything else, is it an excuse for us to just kind of say, oh, well, you know, this isn't really an issue, but obviously if you show up and you do a thing, you can't walk down their streets without dealing with that. So what, what do, what's your thoughts on that? No, totally. Uh, First of all, I I agree. Like, uh, I think if you're talking about the ethnic makeup of a church, the best thing a church could be is reflective of its community. If you're, I went to church uh, when I lived in Chicago on the South side and 79th street It's an all black neighborhood for miles and miles and miles. You won't see nothing but a black person. And our church was all black. I don't think that's a problem. Mm -hmm. I don't think a church in an all white suburb being all white is a problem. Um, but for me, when it comes to the, the theology, right, um, it's an understanding that this isn't just something that, well, you know, churches in the big city with diversity, they, they need to be not racist. (laughs) You know know what I mean? It's like this, this actually helps you understand the gospel better, Mm -hmm. right? The, like, even if you most of your operations happen in a small local community the church has always been global yeah it is to the nations right make disciples of all nations someone's preaching it's for everyone right Mm -hmm. and so it's like when we and that's the thing it's not seeking it out because it particularly happens to be relevant to your community because you have a bunch of filipinos in your community it's Mm -hmm. as a person who following the gospel of jesus which is always for the nations we become more like God when we learn from all cultures created in the image of God, hmm. right? We actually become better Christians. Boom. You know, that's that's what it is. Is It will improve your theology and your love and your Christ-likeness. That's hmm. why you value it, not because there's black people in your community that don't feel welcome, which probably might be true as well. Um, but yeah, that's so good. I'm like, that's, that's the... So, yeah. so, so why haven't... Can I... Can I 
switch a gear or did you have something that's else? fine i guess the the, the follow-up thought i have to that then is in a, in a lot in a way i feel like what we're talking about then is we're, we're trying to speak directly to the orientation and hearts of people mm-hmm. you know because we can speak largely to the institutions and the organizations but at that point we're talking about trying to change systematic authoritative power yeah but it's like if independent hearts you yeah. know don't change to realize there's a better theology yeah. than to just inherit whatever i'm given where yeah. i was raised and who sits around me in church then if we don't independently take those opportunities to think larger and wider in that yeah. way, then I think that we'll just pass on yeah. that continued inheritance of of all of that. Because that's yeah. I think that's where I, I'm trying to think of like being an active person <clears throat> in my community to bring about that kind of change. And it's like, well, what am I speaking to and who am I speaking to? Am I trying to you know increase my power as a you know ethnic leader to yeah. then be in a place to make the change or am i trying to figure out ways to speak to the larger authority yeah. to then expect them to make a systematic change and i think that's that's kind of been my tension the past couple of years with just watching yeah. everything taking place and like ah oh, so much. like it it seems like the easy the hardest but yet most effective focus thing is to how do we focus on people yeah you know and really really work on people and the thing is even if you exist in one particular community uh, i'm talking predominantly about the american context um like with what we have and the way our lives are like none of us our influence reaches beyond that if you have a facebook Mm -hmm. right you might live in one community but if you went to college and made a bunch of friends and then moved back to your small town you still have friends from all over yeah. you know and so it's like you can say oh this isn't relevant to me but every time you post your opinion on facebook you're preaching that truth whatever it is to people from all different yeah. parts of the country and maybe even world right and um with our jobs with the, like the world is so connected and so small now when you if you don't have a facebook if you vote you know what i'm saying the people you vote for the street sweeper like they yep. they all affect the whole nation yeah you know they affect the whole so um yeah. so let me yeah so like you're, Andy, you're done yeah i'm cutting you off we got <laughs> we got a i got i got a couple burning questions over yeah. this direction um why so so you've come and you've you've done spoken word in our community uh-huh um and in my sense is you do that a lot uh-huh. um so why haven't you given up on the white evangelical subculture why do you yeah. why do you still seek to influence to speak into that so i'm curious about that yeah um there's there's a few reasons (laughs) actually a few years ago uh i was performing at this predominantly white event and this this white guy came up to me and he said micah god has called you to a very strange and difficult mission field white people (laughs) (laughs) was he white he was white he was white but he grew up in West Africa. Got it. Okay. And so he was like, he had all this tension in yeah. himself. And he's like, I just feel like the way you communicate things like this. And when he said that, I was like, no, nah, heck no. I, like, like, I do not want to be my mission to the white people. Like, like, no, that's not like my, my heart is always, you know, for black folks, for helping, you know, oppressed communities, impoverished communities, all these things. But when he said it and when I thought about where I grew up, then my education and all of my experiences, I do feel like I've been kind of uniquely fashioned to to be a bridge and to communicate things like struggling for four years of my school, um, figuring out how to exist in that environment prepared me and, and it gave me the skill set to have these tough conversations without just snapping on people. You know, because I had to learn how to do that if I was going to stay sane, you know, and not just be that angry black person at this white Christian school. So, um, but overall, why, why I haven't given up? A few reasons. One, I I realized that my frustration with the church um, was really a frustration just with the American institution and expression of it, which Mm -hmm. is not what Mm -hmm. the church actually is. Preach. And, And traveling and seeing expressions of church in different cultures that are nothing like here, I'm like, oh, I don't hate the church. Right. I, I hate this particular institution that has expired. Maybe there was a time where this was thriving, but it, it's not. Mm. I, I tell people all the time, I'm like, let's just think. If, 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 we, could, if we could erase the template uh, in our heads as to what a church is. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, okay, I'm going to tell two quick stories. There's this one. I was performing <laughs> at this, this church plant. It was 11 weeks old. And before I got there, the pastor was like, yeah, you know, we want to be a, we want to be a church that's, that's different and reach the unreached. And, and we want to be a church for people who hate church and all this stuff, whatever. And then I get there 
And it's like coffee and donuts outside. Um, <laughs> you know, three to five worship songs, yeah. announcements, yeah. 40 minute sermon. Yeah. And I was like, it wasn't bad, but Just, it felt like everything else. Right. But he was talking like they were doing this revolutionary thing. And so I, I say, you know, street sweeper. Imagine, <laughs> imagine if, if we didn't have this idea of what church was like, right. and we became, we converted to believing in Jesus. And, and the group of us said, hey, let's meet once a week to fellowship, to encourage each other as a community, and to grow in our faith and to worship God together. What do you want to do? And one person was like, hey, I have an idea. How about we come together, this whole community, all of us, and we designate one man to talk for an hour every week, and then we go home. <laughs> that'll, that'll never work that'll never work that's ridiculous you would look at him like like they were crazy right what we're trying to foster community here right we're trying to we're trying to encourage each other and pray and live and do life together and you think it, that's the stupidest idea ever like why would we have only one person and the same person every week talk to at us right like i'm like oh that's not what yeah. church is and so first of all realizing i don't hate the church i hate one cultural expression of it um and then the other thing is and i know uh whatever people might take this some way but like i believe in the bible i'm not a bibleite right i believe in the church i'm not a churchite i'm a christian like the word means to be like christ or little christ and so for me when i get frustrated with my faith and all these things I, I, I go back to Jesus and I, and I go to the scriptures and I read the gospels and I see who Jesus was and how he treated people and how he loved the outcast and the least of these and poor and women and minorities. Um, and a lot of what he does and how he lives challenges me, but nothing about the person of Christ embarrasses me or makes me feel like I don't want to be associated with that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I look and I say, that's hard. Mm-hmm. But I believe in it with all my heart. And if I am known as someone who is Christ-like or follows Christ or a Christian until the day that I die, every time I look at Jesus, I'm cool. Like, I, I will never give up on that. And then, and then just the understanding that, yes, the church is full of broken people. Like, we're up and, and I don't expect people to have perfect theology or to be woke or to none of it. It's like, yo, like, we are all in process. And so uh, I have a lot of grace for, for folks who, who are in process, um, who have blind spots. Um, yeah. And, and then I have a lot of rebukes for those who are in positions of leadership who should know better. It's know? It, but it's mm -hmm. interesting the way that you do your art. And mm -hmm. that's what I want to get to. I, wanna, I actually yeah. want to hear you. Um, because the rebukes come in a way that is very surprising and a, a way that's almost more compelling than if they were just straightforward. Yeah. And uh and so that's what I what I think you've really stumbled onto that's beautiful is um an ability to have those hard conversations in ways that are still hard mm -hmm. but they allow people to hear and enter in. Mm -hmm. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your art. I love the way you explained what spoken word is yeah. and why you do it. Yeah. And give us an example, if, if you would, and yeah, tell us yeah. the context of it. Yeah, for sure. So for those unfamiliar, spoken word poetry is poetry meant to be performed instead of read on, instead of read on a page. So it's like the difference between writing um, a script for a film and writing a novel. If you write a novel, you expect people to read it on paper. If you write a script, you don't want people to read it. You want them to watch the actors perform what you've written. So it's poetry meant to be performed. Um, why I do it, um, during my college years, I was actually home for the summer in Long Beach, and someone invited me to an open mic in L.A., and it was for spoken word poetry. I'd seen spoken word on YouTube, but I'd never seen it live before. Hmm. And I go into this room full of complete strangers, and it wasn't a religious thing. It was just a community thing. And person after person gets up there and just pours their heart out. I love it. And it was like people from different cultures, different beliefs, they were sharing things that you wouldn't tell your best friend, that you'd mm -hmm. write in your journal and hope nobody ever sees. Mm -hmm. They were sharing things that I had thought and went through. But when I thought those things and I, when I went through those things in my head, I was too afraid to tell anyone because I'm the only person in the world who's, who's thought like this. People mm -hmm. would think I'm crazy if I... But then I see other folks saying, saying the same things I was thinking. I was like, oh. And so it helped me realize I'm not as alone as I thought. Yeah. Um, so it was just, I'd never been in any 
any group of friends or any small group where vulnerability like that was as welcomed. Mm. Right. Um, but then another thing, mm. and, and, and that's interesting about art, you're allowed to be vulnerable. You know, mm-hmm. if you're in a, if you're in a conversation with your friend and you're like, you know, sometimes like, I just really hate everything. And I want to like kill my wife and commit suicide. You know, they'd be like, you have an issue. <laughs> you need to go to a counselor. But like Eminem can make a, a rap song about right. hating everything and wanting to kill his daughter and, 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 and blow his brains out. And people are like, oh, me too. Right? <laughs> so, like, oh, that's so good. Yeah, like for whatever reason, you know, totally. if someone is complaining yeah. about never finding love, you'd be like, you're so annoying. And then, you know, John Mayer can make a whole album about wanting love. And right. So it's, it was, mm-hmm. I realized that art, artistic expression was a place where vulnerability was allowed and without being judged. So that, that drew me to it. Um, and then the other thing was, I started hanging out at open mics a whole lot and I realized although the vulnerability was beautiful, um, there was like nothing after that. Hmm. It was mm-hmm. like, we like, like everyone was just confessing. It's like life sucks, but it's better since it sucks for all of us. And it just felt like commiseration. Right. And so I thought, man, it, it, is it possible to be th- possible to be that vulnerable, but also in an authentic way, have hope? Come not on. throw a Jesus Come band-aid on. on top of it. Come on. But to say, we're not afraid of the brokenness, but we actually have something to say to it. Right. You know? And so that was kind of my motivation for starting Spoken Word. Um, this it. particular... Reconstructive um, Spoken Word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you know? Um, and so... And it was another, another interesting aspect of it was there's people who would never accept an invitation to church. But if you're able to talk about your faith in a compelling way in poetry they'll listen absolutely you know and mm. so because it was it's real to you exactly and they'll respect it and they'll chew on it so yeah i'll share a poem uh kind of in in context of this racial conversation i think one of the reasons that i uh i can I be a bridge because i understand both sides because of my experiences mm-hmm. um and when i was in chicago i got involved in this ministry that would go into uh, this juvenile detention center. Hmm. And it was a temporary holding facility for teenagers who had committed crimes and they were awaiting trial. So they'd be there anywhere from like a few weeks to like nine months. Um, so they were like between the ages of 11 and 18. Um, and we would go in there week after week and we would just hang out. We'd bring snacks. You know, we'd, we'd talk about anything they want. We could talk about basketball. We could hmm. talk about faith. We could pray with them. Um, and week after week, I went in there And I couldn't help but notice the overwhelming majority, about 90% of the kids in there were black. Hmm. And I thought to myself, Chicago is a huge city. Millions of people live here, dozens and dozens of cultures. How is it that the overwhelming majority of the teenage criminals are all black? Hmm. And it really started messing with me. I really started to think, man, are black people just more sinful than other people how is this possible and it just it, it bothered me and then one week i went there and there was a kid who's the kindest kid you would ever meet um and he says hey mikey you want to know how i got in here and i said yeah man if you if you want to share and so he goes well i was born on the south side which is an all-black neighborhood and predominantly impoverished because i was born on the south side um it's me my mom and my little sister he says i'm 14 years old it's wintertime in Chicago. My mom got laid off her job and she was having trouble paying rent. And our landlord kept threatening to kick us out and be be homeless and below zero degrees. Also, my little sister kept crying every night because my mom couldn't afford to buy food. We had no dinner. Hmm. And he goes, I, I got sick of hearing my, my baby sister cry and be hungry. I, I got sick of seeing my mom stressed out because she thought we were about to be homeless in, you know, negative 30 weather. He goes, I'm 14. I wanted to help, but you got to be 16 to get a real job. He says, so I never did drugs in my life before. I never sold drugs in my life before. But I knew a lot of the homies in my neighborhood sold drugs and made money. He says, so I went, <laughs> I went to the drug dealers and I said, can you teach me how to sell drugs? Because I started selling drugs, paying rent, buying groceries. I did that for months until I got busted by an undercover cop. He says, you know, the worst part about being in here is I don't know if my mom and my sister are sleeping out in the cold. I don't know if they have anything to eat. And I can't do nothing about it. Mm. And, (laughs) man, 
Like when you're looking at things from the outside in, a lot of Christians, a lot of white Christians, they have these really like just cold moral standards, you know, uh, this heartless morality that says, hey, selling drugs is wrong. If you do do the crime, you pay the time. But then if you sit down and you hear his story, like in his 14 year old mind, he's choosing between being homeless and hungry in Chicago with his whole family or selling drugs. You know, there is a difference. There's a difference between someone who just has no respect for law and is lazy and doesn't want to get a real job and someone who out of desperation is willing to do something that is, is risking their own freedom, right? And uh, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, it says, do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his hunger, right? God is the one who told us stealing is wrong. But there's a difference between someone who steals out of disregard for someone else's property and someone who steals because they are hungry and they're desperate. There's a difference between someone who illegally crosses the border because they have no respect for the nation and someone who says, my family is dying or my city is getting bombed in war or we are starving because of poverty. Yes, I'm willing to break a law to save the lives of my children and to ensure they have a better future than me. Hmm. Do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his hunger. So that's where this poem uh, comes from. It's titled Stealing Bread. Do not make me the exception to your stereotype. Do not use my success as evidence to condemn my brother's lazy. This land's booby traps simply missed me. Don't dare you disrespect my kin. I am no greater or less than them. You will cause division between us no more. Our less fortunate will be loved, not blamed for making the rest of us look bad. And I refuse to despise a poor man for stealing bread. We are poor men stealing bread, and I suggest you not despise us, or you just might anger God. If you are not afraid, make your way to any metropolis USA. Go to the poor side of town, the hood side of town, the ghetto side of town, and what do you see? Poverty is supposed to be colorblind, but it is so closely tied to blackness. Terms used for low economic status are now synonymous with a culture, mm. a people. In American minds, black folks do not suffer from poverty. We are poverty. We are hood. We are ghetto. And we like it that way. Don't you hear how we rap about it? Remember how slaves used to sing about picking cotton? Oh, but slavery is done with. Just like segregation, this nation elected a black president. Anyone who doesn't succeed is just making bad decisions. Black on black crime, remember? Alcohol and substance abuse. Absent black fathers, too. If black people would just be better people then we would be better right look me in the eye you warn your children not to step foot in the neighborhoods that ours have no choice but to be raised in then play ignorant as if success has nothing to do with the situations we are born into as if most of us just don't want it as much as most of you your average child will thrive while our exceptional might make it out alive so look me in the eye and tell me you believe we chose this Hmm. Tell me we're poor on purpose. Hmm. Tell me you believe we like being hungry. Tell me we'd rather sell drugs than have a career. Tell me we deserve to go to jail. Tell me you believe we hate ourselves. Tell me we're lazy. Tell me we're ghetto. Look me in the eye. We are poor men stealing bread. And I suggest you not despise us. Oh, so good, dude. One of the things that... um spoken word does it's meant to be seen mm -hmm. and so you know mm -hmm. to watch to hear it is one thing to watch mike do it's another so thank you for sharing that yeah, yeah. For sure. it um it, it, and and that's what's so compelling i think is for me you're somebody has um every reason to be cynical and every reason to give up on the church mm -hmm. you have every reason to embrace you know something else and yet um the way god has gifted you uh, to speak truth to power mm -hmm. and to speak truth to a culture, I think it's just, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And so, um, our excitement, you know, once we've had you at, at Vox a couple of times, it's just like, oh my goodness, we, we've got to, we've got to get to know you more yeah. because, um, um, I, I, being a prophet's a hard thing. Mm -hmm. If you're too far out ahead, <laughs> no one listens. And if you're too close, you've got nothing to say. Mm -hmm. And so there's this weird fringe that you have to walk mm -hmm. 
you know, and I think you do that very well. Is there, um, are there places, and I genuinely, I'm assuming there are places where your work is on display, whether it's albums or iTunes or whatever. uh, Yeah, for sure. Throw that that out there. I I have a lot of uh, videos online on my website. It's just my name, micahbornet.com, M-I-C-A-H-B-O-U-R-N-E-S.com. So you can just um, watch a lot of videos on there, Um, but also... um, all of my albums, and I have recordings in albums of, of poetry set to music. I have a hip hop EP and a full length blues album. Um, those are all on all the streaming services as well as iTunes, but they're also free downloads through my Bandcamp, which is just micahbornet.bandcamp.com. Um, I love Instagram. Uh, I'm working on new material. I'm working on my first full-length hip-hop album and a poetry EP that hopefully will both be released later this year. And so if you want to know when that comes out, you can follow me on Instagram or subscribe to my mailing list on my website. Dang. Yeah. Could you do something about bald people? Just, I mean, the struggles. (laughs) You know, you walk, I mean, you walk through a pharmacy and there's all the shampoo. And you're like, not for me. And you you have, and you have something about shampoo, which is awesome. I do. Oh my goodness. That's right. So, so bro, thank you, man. Thank you so much for, for being with us. And thank you for not giving up on, um, the, the tough conversations. I think you, you are uniquely gifted to have them in a, in a compelling way. So, um, so brothers and sisters, please check him out. He is amazing. And, uh, we're, we're huge fans. So, um, thanks for your time. Oh, for sure. Appreciate it, my man. Andy, anything you want to close with? Nope. Thanks a lot, Micah. Appreciate it. All right. Sounds good. good to be here. Told you, man, that guy rocks. Boom. Boom. Um, and, and, you know, again, like I said in the interview, seeing him is different than, you know, just listening to it. But check out his stuff. It's Michael Bournier. Bournier you just Born- said Michael Bournier. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it. Golly. I- Micah yes. Bournier. Yeah, spell it. <laughs> M-I-C-A-H-B-O-U-R-N-E-S. Man, I hope he doesn't listen because I I'm a hack. <laughs> I grew up in Ohio, and the the only the weirdest thing we had to pronounce, you know, was Chichis. That was our Mexican restaurant was Chichis, and so I, that was that was like literally the extent of my enculturation. Wait, wait, say my last name. Uh, Lara. Uh, you got it that time. <laughs> Not Laura. Not Laura. It's Lara, and. Yep. It's Spanish. Yes. No, it's not. Yes, it is. So let me get this straight. You're Caucasian slash Filipino with a Spanish last name? Yeah, because Spain colonized Philippines. Damn you. It's part of the Damn you, Philippine colonization. Well, Anyhow. all right. We've all been colonized at some point. <laughs> I was... I was an Anglo Especially once you're over the age of 40. By the... Oh, my goodness. I'm colonized by everything. <laughs> Jeez. Oh, that was a colon joke. You didn't get it. A colonized. I've been colonized. <laughs> it's the age of 50, by the way. But you know what? It sounds so fun. I might just get it checked sooner. I think I think they're recommending you get it checked earlier nowadays. Uh, I yeah. think so. Okay. Anyhow. Um, so so anyway, my brothers and sisters, I uh, hope you enjoyed that. We, we just love having Micah around. And uh, we want you to support his work if you're able to. Um, we've got, uh, we've got some big guests coming up. Yeah. I'm not going to tell you who, nope. but, um, because, um, because of the success of the Andy list episode, <laughs> I'm now able to book some guests of uh, significant stature. So, um, I'm trying to get Mr. T no, that, wouldn't that be the greatest thing? Like, Hey, Mr. T, would you did do you, a podcast? Did you watch him on dancing with the stars? I've never seen that show. He, he's on this season. Is it? It's awful. Oh, I, you know, you know what, you know what would be fun? It would be a podcast series of 80s celebrities oh, that, that are just total has beens. Oh, it's so good. You know what I mean? I love that idea. Um, I think that would be really fun. Like Ricky Schroeder, what's yeah. he doing? He was uh, Silver Spoons. Yep. Um, Justine Bateman, yep. right? She was on Family Ties, right? Yeah. Uh, Alyssa Milano, right? Uh, um, I mean, there's big ones. I mean, uh, imagine uh, Rob Lowe. Amelia, S. I mean the entire Breakfast Club cast. Would yeah, but be... they're doing stuff. Yeah, they're doing stuff. You but know what I watched still the other day? Kinda... Young Guns. Yeah, so good. Lou Diamond, River Phillips. Phoenix. What's Lou Diamond Gone. Phillips doing? I don't know. Outside Great question. A... Well, we know what Mr. Great T's name. doing. Yes, <laughs> seriously. Um, so anyway, I don't know what that was for, but uh, we've got some big guests, and I, I mean not just big in in size. 
I mean, big names. Yeah. Um, so anyway, we're excited about that. Uh, thank you for tuning in. As always, we're, we are thrilled to be a part of your life and uh, always love your feedback uh, at hello at uh, voxpodcast.com. Or you can uh, show up on a Sunday morning uh, if you're really desperate uh, for a nap and you can uh, 9 and 11 and uh, make an appearance. And we have uh, we have podcasters come up and say hi. And we just love that you stop by and, yeah. and say hello. So thanks for that. Um, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you, particularly if your name is French. Amen and amen. Hey, thanks for listening to the Vox Podcast. Learn more about us at voxpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at the Vox Podcast. And now support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash voxpodcast.